morning. I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you yet. Um, don't you love this talk about the beasts? Isn't this exciting? Anybody come to church and think, man, this is going to be another boring reading, nothing going on? The beasts. What is going on with the beasts? Uh, one, one way to think about this type of literature uh, that is called apocalyptic, when it uses these extreme images and uh, stories, is it's an attempt to wake us up and an attempt to kind of get, get through the fog of this world to show us reality in its starkest, starkest contrast. And so maybe one example that helps us understand that is uh, imagine it's 1925, you're in Germany, and uh, Adolf Hitler is in prison. He's just published Mein Kampf. And you hear of a preacher predicting the rise of this man who's in prison. And he is going to, in less than 10 years, be chancellor. In less than 15, he's going to be running concentration camps where, he w where there will be burning of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and dissidents and all. And this guy is preaching this crazy vision. And Hitler's in prison. He's been ashamed because he had this failed beer hall putsch two years earlier. What would it take for you to believe that? To think that there is going to be a war of that magnitude? To think that there is some kind of battle going on and that he's going to be? What, how would you get through if you are the preacher? How would you get through what seems to be an otherwise relatively calm situation? Some of you know the Confession Church tried to get through in this time, 1934. They started off this declaration of Christians saying, there is no other authority in the church but the word of God alone. No fearer, no other competitor. That is something of the point of apocalyptic literature. We need to see with new eyes what is really going on. We are at war, is what this literature wants to say, for example, when it's not obvious. It's easy to say that. I mean, if you're in Germany in 1941, you don't have to convince anybody that you're at war, right? You don't need extreme images, beasts. But when it's not obvious, and yet it's still true, how sad of a thing it would be to be walking through a war zone as if nothing's going on. That's really the life of the non-Christian, totally oblivious to the actual battles, to the actual reality of what's going on. So with that in mind, let's try to understand what God wants to teach us today. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful song we got to sing that we are saved by grace alone, that we will fight by grace alone, and that it is for your glory. And so we do pray, Lord, for your love, 
your unity, your glory. God, we ask for the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the consolation of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for the real challenge and conviction. God, won't you break through our hard hearts? Show us where we are oblivious to the battle that we need to fight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk about three, three main uh, points here. Name the battle, understand the battle, and then fight it. And first, we do have to name it. We have to identify. And I brushed on it a little bit two weeks ago when we did the first half of Daniel 7. But that was really focused on the coming of the Son of Man. Um, and today, in the second half of the chapter, is, is much more focused on this fourth beast and this war that is being made upon the saints. So we need to figure out what is going on. Who is the fourth beast? Is it the Antichrist? Is it the Pope? Is it a political figure? You know, is it Caesar? Who is the fourth beast? Well, the tricky thing about this literature is that it's not always clear when it is chronological. Because when it says even the word, I saw this, then this, then this, that could be just the chronology of the vision, not the chronology of what will soon take place. Does that make sense? He's just seeing things in, in order. That doesn't mean you're supposed to read that it's a prediction of that order. And with this idea of trying to wake us up to real reality, there's these symbols that are meant to point to something much greater than themselves. And so probably, for instance, the four corners of the earth are symbolized by these four kings coming. And, and making war and destroying and devouring is probably pointing to some kind of universal uh, uh, king. What is more is that when you look at verse 11, that we didn't hear read, hear read, but verse 11 makes clear that the fourth beast is killed when the Ancient of Days makes his judgment, but the other three, the first three, remain alive, even though their dominion is taken away. So they seem to be doing things still, while the fourth beast has already been killed. Even though in the passage that we just heard read in the second half, it seems like it's all about the fourth beast. And he's the one that's going to be the worst. He's so terrifying that they can't even name. We don't even know what kind of beast he is. The others were like leopards. And, but this guy, we don't even know. He's just terrifying. You can't even name him. But he seems to clearly be surviving past the other three. He's the one that they really got to deal with. So that's. All of those things, and we can talk more, and you can listen to the sermon from two weeks ago, too, if you want to hear a little bit more. But basically, all of that is to say that I'm pretty convinced that the fourth beast is Rome-ish. It's the spirit of what became Rome. It's the spirit, ultimately, of the kingdom of the world. In the book of Revelation, you see something very similar with the use of Babylon, so the book of Revelation, written in the first century after Christ, Babylon's long gone. They all know that Babylon is long gone, but when you read a lot of the visions in the book of Revelation, they're talking about the destruction of Babylon, and Babylon's going to be destroyed. And ba Babylon is clearly code word for the political powers of that day. Right? 
It's a code word. It's a, it, he's trying to make a point that the spirit of Babylon is still alive and is making war against the saints, but will eventually be killed. So I think in the same way, what's going on here is that this fourth beast is the spirit of the kingdom of the world. This is the kingdom of Satan. This is the kingdom of darkness. Is what Colossians 1 calls it. Rarely do we see it in all its clarity as a beast. Hey, I'm the fourth beast. Fight me. He doesn't appear that way. So this type of literature is trying to get us to see where is he? What is he? What is he trying to do? And maybe this makes you very uncomfortable. The beast language is enough, but now we've got to talk about fighting a war against the beast. What church did I just walk into? Right? Well, it's a, it is an important question. Should we not talk this way? We know it's abuses. We know it's been used in all sorts of fundamentalistic ways in Christianity and other religions to just support outright violence. And it's very obvious that that is a horrible distortion of the gospel and the entire New Testament. But it is important to, for us to ask, why is this language hard for us to hear, if it is? Is it our personality? Is it just the way that we have bought into the culture around us? I know for a lot of uh, students that I get to work with, it's just hard, I think, for them to believe that their best friend, their roommates are wrong. That's like a fundamental, it's just hard to believe that someone is wrong. And I get that. That makes sense, especially in the world that we live in, right? You do you, you do your thing. But it would be pretty silly to just go along with how the culture thinks because you just are going along with those who happen to be alive today. Why would they be the wisest? So try to ask yourself, is it any of those reasons or is it just, I simply don't understand what the Bible is talking about when it says there's going to be a war against the saints of the Most High. If that's where we're at, I think that's where we should be at least. Let's try to understand what is this battle. So if we've named it, let's try to understand what it is. Uh, Daniel makes it clear that it is very, very terrifying. There seems to be a clear outward, and then we'll talk about the inward uh, battle. The clear outward battle in verses uh, 21 and 25, we're told that this beast made war with the saints spoke words against the Most High. So he's speaking some type of blasphemy. He's even described one of the horns has like a mouth who's speaking in, in arrogance and pride. Uh, seems to have prevailed over the saints for a time. Shall wear out the saints, and this will last for a time, times, and half a time. Uh, We'll come back to that phrase. But just notice that it should be terrifying. This type of battle is going to be very intense. See, it will seem like the saints are losing, is what he's 
saying. Jesus says very similar things. Why he talks about a mustard seed, because it seems like it's totally insignificant. How could you? There's nothing happening with this tiny little faith of a mustard seed, but from there grows the kingdom of God. And so, if we remember that the whole purpose of this type of literature is to say, wake up and see, we should know it's not going to look this way. It's not going to be obvious. Because, as Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians 11, that there are those that he is interacting with and has heard about who are disguising themselves as apostles and yet are apostles of Satan. That's wild. (laughs) And then he says, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I think C.S. Lewis said, it's the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing us that he doesn't exist. Are we aware that there is an enemy? That's simply what I'm asking. Are we aware that there is this spiritual battle happening? Because it would be a terrible tragedy to not even know you are in a war zone. And one question I love to ask is, if you imagine yourself with an armor of God in this battle, where is the chink in your armor? Where are you most vulnerable to some kind of attack? So we do need to be subtle in understanding if it's going to be disguised and it's going to be hidden and it's not going to appear the way we think. We do need to be careful in understanding what the battle is. We need to really be submitting to the word and to the consensus of the church and what the battle is. And let me point out that when I say that the spirit of the kingdom of the world, the spirit of uh, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls Satan in Ephesians, in the Old Testament, it is different than in the New. And this is very important that we need to understand. In the Old Testament, and this is in the context that Daniel is writing, he could point to the government of Babylon and say, that is the kingdom of Satan. And you could point to the kingdom in Israel, at least before they became apostate, and say, that is the kingdom of God. It was identified in that way. In the New Testament, you can't do that. It's simply a category mistake. You simply cannot say that the government of America is the kingdom of God and the government of Afghanistan is the kingdom of Satan. You just can't say that. It doesn't make any sense. Christian nationalism of any sort doesn't make any sense. The reason is Jesus won. That's why it doesn't make any sense. Because how did Jesus win? He won by dying. He defeated the kingdom of Satan by dying. We do not fight by flesh and blood because flesh and blood cannot win this battle. It cannot be equated with it. Now, it's very clear there's there's more that we need to say. 
There are political regimes throughout the world, throughout the history of the world, that do things more in line with the values of the kingdom of God, and there are others who do things that are less in line with the kingdom, with the values of the kingdom. That seems to be obvious. But it's never equated. And an example is, let's say, yes, of course, if you are a part of the kingdom of God, you should believe that a murderer should be punished and put in jail. Yes, of course. That is the purpose of the state. You should be willing to support that, and you should be willing to support that someone go into that prison and preach the gospel to him. For the Old Testament, like we see throughout the narratives, if you are committing a sin of whatever the law prescribed, required death, you commit it, you are killed, that's the end of the matter. If we want to institute that type of kingdom, then we should be stoning to death those that the Old Testament prescribes us to. But because it's a different sort of kingdom, because Jesus has come and said, if we actually do that to perfection, nobody survives. So I'm going to take on all of y'all's deserved stonings of death. I'm going to take that on myself. Then the kingdom has come in a totally different way. The one to receive all glory, like the Son of Man is predicted to do in, in Daniel 7. The one who received all glory, how did he do that? He laid aside his glory. He laid it aside and humbled himself to the point of death. So there is this battle that we need to understand. It is clearly... There is an outward aspect to it. There is an aspect to it where it, um, we need to be aware of where this attack comes. It is outward, but it is more subtle than uh, we often give it credit, or at least it's more subtle than what's going on in the Old Testament. But it is also, of course, inward. And it would be a horrifying and disgusting church, frankly, if all we talked about was the battle is out there and not inside. And so the battle is inward because the kingdom of Satan is a active kingdom and it is infecting our hearts. And so the sinful nature that we still fight against is trying to be wielded by Satan. Is trying to be wielded by uh, by this enemy, and if we don't realize it, it will just be the blind leading the blind. Anything that tries to lead us away from becoming more like Jesus is at the behest of this kingdom. You guys scared yet? Have I got you depressed? Good, you should be. Israel was totally hopeless. This vision comes at the first year of Belshazzar, who came after Nebuchadnezzar. And you can imagine, maybe they thought, Nebuchadnezzar died, now we're going back to Israel. But then another king comes of Babylon, and so it's not as great as they thought. You can imagine how hopeless they would be. And so this vision is meant to give assurance and hope and comfort to Israel of the real reality. 
So we need to learn how to fight this battle. If this is what is true of reality, if this is what is true of the real battle that is going on, how do we do it? How do we fight it? Well, the way that the kingdom is described is that it is a kingdom that we receive. Did you catch that? He talks about receiving and possessing the kingdom in verses 18, 22, and 27. Once this judgment comes, but the court shall sit in judgment, as it says in 26, the saints will receive the kingdom and it, they shall possess it forever, forever and ever. Which is meant to be in contrast with the war that is going to last for a time, times, and half a time. Which is apocalyptic speak for saying time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. Right? Three and a half is half of seven. What is seven? Seven is the complete number. It's the holy number. It's the days of creation. It's seven spirits in Revelation. It is saying that he can see everywhere. If the spirit of God is described as seven spirits with eyes, he can see everywhere. Seven is the number of completion. So if this war only lasts three and a half years, it's not going to last that long. It's not going to last forever. It's a picture of comfort that we will receive this kingdom after a short battle. It doesn't seem short, maybe. It doesn't seem like, uh, it sure seems like it's terrible, but that's the point of the vision, that we shall receive it. But we receive the judgment that has happened already. Verses 22, just to remind you, until the Ancient of Days came. This war is happening until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints. In verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. Remember, the Father is pictured here as sitting in judgment, which is what we should want. And his dominion, the fourth beast, his dominion shall be taken away when that judgment happens. Now, we saw two weeks ago in the coming of the Son of Man that the New Testament all over the place says that Jesus is the Son of Man and he has received the glory and dominion that was predicted in verse 14. That he, when he ascends after being raised from the dead, he sits because he is in power and has received all glory and dominion. Which apparently means, what? The judgment has already happened. The judgment that this text is saying will initiate the saints to have the kingdom of God has happened in Jesus. That's why when Mark 1, what is the first thing that Jesus says? Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. It's come in Jesus. Hebrews 10, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. Luke 17, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or within you, or is at hand, or it has come, or it is near. The kingdom of God has come. 
That's why I had us read Revelation, by the way. We often think of this book of Revelation as all about the future and some, something crazy is going to happen. We don't really know what. But the book of Revelation has a lot to do with the present. And chapter 1 makes it clear that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. He calls Jesus the ruler of kings on earth. Presently, he is the ruler of kings on earth. And he says, of those who are in Christ, he has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He's weaving in Daniel 7 and Exodus 19 when Israel is told that they will be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. And he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. But then notice in verse 9 of that passage from Revelation how John describes himself. John being the apostle John who witnessed uh, the ministry of Jesus and the resurrection. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, co-sharer, co-laborer, co-participant in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The tribulation, I love that combination. The tribulation the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's, that sums it up right there, doesn't it? Hallelujah, we have received the kingdom. We're in the tribulation now. We wait and we fight. We fight and we wait. But this type of fighting is a whole different sort of fighting than what we think. We're still fighting against this kingdom of the world, against the kingdom of Satan, but it's not by flesh and blood. It's not by pride and arrogance and self-reliance, the way that we think normal battles are fought. Because it's fighting against this Satan who's already been killed. He is like a chicken running around with his head cut off. Apparently that does happen. My kids have seen it. They're all into, you know, like nature and 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 Animals, they've been around, especially at farms in Vermont, when people are butchering animals. And it's like, all right, the ch chicken's head's been cut off. You got to go chase it. Blood is spurting out. Sorry. But that's the one we fight against. It seems like I realize he has a lot of power. But that's not reality. He is on a chain, he is lost, and he is putting up a desperate attempt to take anyone out of the kingdom that he can. So we do need to ask, if we receive this kingdom, that receiving is still a fight. To live in that kingdom is still a fight. To encourage others to live in that kingdom is still a fight. So do we fight? Do we? I know it's not in my nature, in my personality. I'm a classic passive-aggressive. I don't like to fight. I included a quote there about evangelism in the early church. And this really speaks to me, for sure. 
The militaristic analogies favored by Christian writers from St. Paul to Tertullian, who was a church father, third century, despite the fact that the Christians refused to enter the army, suggest a coherence, a recognition of spiritual battle, and a fierce and frequently apocalyptic commitment. This does not describe me. The first Christians were rather like the early communists, small groups bound together by an overmastering passion. This almost military vision, commitment, and sacrifice is a major characteristic of the overflowing churches in Africa, Asia, and Latin America today. Without something like it in the West, how will anyone in our jaded society be moved? They may be pardoned for reflecting, these people are Christians, are they very nice for them? if they like that sort of thing, but it has nothing to offer me. You think that's how a lot, a lot of people react to us? I know it is to me. He seems nice. Not until we in the West burn with a passion which is almost a pain to reach people with the gospel will they be likely to take the matter seriously. So do we fight? Do we think it's worth fighting for? Or do we just think it's nice and interesting? And the way I think that we fight the battle, I mentioned this receiving, it's always by grace. That song was perfect. It's all, I will slay sin by grace alone is the work of God's grace. But we also need to radically transform our expectations. What do we expect if we were to internalize this vision, we should expect a war. Maybe we just need to say that to ourselves more. I know it doesn't sound very popular, but all right, there's a war. There's a war. I'm going to falter in that war. I'm going to be experiencing casualties in that war. But the idea the images that we are bombarded with all the time that we should have heaven on earth is simply a lie from the devil. It will come, but it will come when Jesus comes. And if we expect anything else, we are buying into the kingdom of Satan. Is that our expectation? Do we get so easily distracted and consumed by demanding comfort and ease and just being nice. If we meet evil for evil or we are just falling back under the sway of the kingdom of the world. So it should bring a whole new expectation. It should bring a whole new view of suffering. It's why Paul can say such insane things like rejoice in your suffering we should expect the warfare. I've said it before, but J.C. Ryle, famous 19th century writer, said a Christian is known by an inner contradiction, inner contentment, and inner warfare. The war has been won. Remember, Satan is the chicken running around with his head cut off. But we have to fight to stay in it. And we have to fight to encourage others to be in it. And so John Calvin 
can call that can call self-denial the sum of the Christian life. Self-denial. Why would that be the sum of the Christian life? The reason is that we are still in this world. We are still fighting against our own sinful desires. We are still here. And so we need to fight against the sin that is so easily rationalized. And so we so easily fall into that our nature is bent towards. Because when we do that, we can become more and more like Jesus. Wouldn't you like it not just to be forced to love your enemies, but to want to love your enemies? To have a new heart more and more that you are so filled with compassion that when someone sins against you, you meet them with love and compassion. That's what he's trying to do when he's killing sin in you. What would that be like? Remember this battle. Don't get caught up if this is hard language to hear about battle and fighting and stuff. Don't get too distracted by that because it's a battle unlike any other. Our weapons are called means of grace. Our weapons are prayer. That's why we are meant to suffer, so that we can become more like Christ, so that the kingdom of God can get more clear here. And we see it when we love, when we meet evil for good, when we suffer but with hope and joy, that we feel depressed but we are not given over to despair when we are filled with sorrow and grief and heartache, but we know that's not the end because we've begun to taste the kingdom, but Jesus is going to come and it's all going to be wiped away. All sin and all death and all division because you, saint, will receive the kingdom forever, forever and ever. All you have to do is ask. That's the economy of this kingdom. There is nothing to buy. All you have to do is ask. And let's fight for this kingdom more than any other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, work against my natural disposition and so many of ours to be cowardly, or to want to fight with the weapons of the world. God, give us boldness and wisdom to fight the battle that you have given us and to fight with the weapons of prayer and love and compassion, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would know he has conquered, that we would know that he is the Son of Man who has received all dominion and glory, and he is waiting for all of his enemies to be subdued. Lord, give us hearts to worship him in all we do. We pray in his name. Amen.